Lord Jesus, we ask that you would use your word to teach us this morning to help us fight the good fight, the fight that you have asked us to fight. We ask this in your name. Amen. Before I preach, I want to take a minute just of family business. Uh, we have just finished closing out the books on 2005, and financially, I just want to say you guys have been so great. In a year where a lot of nonprofits have really struggled to make ends meet, you guys not only met the needs of this church, but also provided relief help, relief help for the victims of the tsunami and victims of the hurricane, and also raised over $120,000 to help out at Stevenson. And you met the needs here. We uh, slightly exceeded our budget, which allowed us to not only meet our needs here, but do some deferred maintenance, as well as give some away to help others in need. Behind those numbers are two things, a very faithful God and a very faithful congregation. And I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous. When I'm talking to other pastors, I brag about you all the time in a godly kind of a way. So, <laughs> thank you. Last Christmas, I took my two oldest kids to the movie Polar Express in order to win extra points for being a good dad. And it was advertised as this great kids movie. Not so much. There was a scene in it that had a ghost. And my kids were so terrified, I could not get them to get up and leave the theater. They just sat there with their mouths open. And finally, Jackson, who was three at the time, said with eyes just fixed on the screen, Daddy, this is not a good movie for me to see. You should not have brought me here. I had this image that I was being Ward Cleaver and Mike Brady and Bill Cosby all rolled up into one good father, and suddenly I was Homer Simpson. I'd failed. We're doing a series of sermons called We've Got Issues. And of all the issues we've got, I think one of the most terrifying for us is failure. We live in a culture where it is not okay to fail. Where the constant question is, what kind of car do you drive? What kind of house do you live in? What kind of job do you have? Do you have the marks of success or are you a failure? And that pressure starts incredibly young. Last year, my wife and I were having a conference with my daughter's teacher, and Holly had taken a reading test, and out of 51 possible points, she had scored 46. And do you know what my first thought was? How can I get her to 51? She's the daughter of a literature teacher. She should be a perfect reader. It's as if our, in our culture we're just a giant binary computer code. You're either a zero or you're number one. And nobody wants to be a zero, and everyone wants to be number one. And the problem is, those are our only choices. Zero or one, there's not enough room in the middle for the rest of us. And so we're constantly wondering, do I measure up? Am I successful, or have I been weighed in the balance and found wanting? Now, before I go any further, I just want to say, I'm not saying that it's wrong to do our best. And if you happen to have some of the marks of success as defined by our culture, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And the point of this story is not that we all go out and be losers for Jesus, because that's a great witness. But when we feel like a failure, 
Or worse, when we are afraid to attempt something God may be asking us to do because we've been taught not to do anything we might fail at, well, then that's when we need God's perspective. That's why I love the passage we just read, one of the most important to me in the Bible. These are the last words the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And he's looking back on his life and he's wondering, have I been successful? Has it been worth it? Or have I been a failure? And at the time, the answer looks sort of like he's been a failure. He's in prison, after all, and it looks like he's failed in a lot of ways. That's why I think this passage offers some hope to us overworked, overstressed, success-oriented, fear-of-failing Eastsiders. And the first piece of hope I think this passage offers is, it teaches us that with Jesus, failure isn't fatal, it's directional. And I've said this to you before, but I think it's worth repeating because we tend not to remember it. Paul does not view the fact that he's ended up in prison as a failure. He views it as God pointing him in a new direction, sort of a career change. Instead, about preaching, instead of preaching about Jesus in one location, he realizes he is called to preach about Jesus in prison. And we know from other parts of Scripture that resulted in a whole lot of people becoming Christians, even people in the emperor's house. Failure wasn't fatal. It's directional. A writer and an acquaintance of mine named John Ortberg tells a story about when he was engaged to be married. And he was trying to figure out where to go on their honeymoon. And he wanted to go somewhere exotic like Hawaii. But he was a a student at the time working part-time in a Baptist church. Didn't have a lot of money. So to earn money, he went on a game show called Tic-Tac-Doe. Really a failure of a name, but there you go. And at one point, it was his turn, and he was hoping for a question that would be easy for him to answer, like something about the Bible. But instead, the category that came up was mixed drinks. (laughs) And the question was, what drink is made of scotch and vermouth? And he said to the host, look, I'm a Baptist pastor. I'm in trouble if I get this wrong, and I'm in trouble if I get this right. They honeymooned in Wisconsin. (laughs) Failure isn't fatal. It's directional. No to one opportunity means yes to another. No to one job means yes to a job somewhere else, someplace else. God always uses our failures for good. To teach us something, most of the stuff I've learned has been through failure. To direct us somewhere. And most importantly to help us to get to know him better. In this passage we read, Paul said that even though I'm in prison, the Lord stood by my side. In other words, in his time of failure, Jesus became more real to him. I have a friend who got fired from his job for playing video games at work. And he felt like a complete failure. But it forced he and his wife to start reading the Bible more, start praying more. And as a result, they got a lot closer to God. And now he's working as a real estate agent, a job that is way better for him. He's got great people skills. He loves it way more. Failure isn't fatal. It's directional. It teaches us something, and it leads us into a closer relationship with God. The second piece of hope I get out of this passage is that Jesus never asks us to be successful. He empowers us to be significant, no matter what. You know, in this text, Paul's in prison for being a rebel. That's not exactly what we would call a success, 
right? You, you can't imagine parents showing pictures of their kids and saying, oh, look, here's Paul. He's in prison for treason. We're so proud. He was not successful by the world's definition, but he was significant. He made a difference. He spread Christianity all over the known world. As a result, it grew to be the world's largest religion, gave rise to things like human rights, the rights of women, democracy, not to mention the fact that because of Paul, billions of people will now live forever in an eternal relationship with the God who loved them enough to die for them. He may not have been successful, but he was significant. Now, right now, some of you might be thinking, oh, great. So now I've got to go start a worldwide religious movement. It's not enough to be successful. I have to be significant, too. Or maybe you're thinking, what if I'm neither? What if I don't feel like I'm either successful or significant? Here's the good news. You don't have to do something huge and earth-shaking to be significant. That's just putting our standards of success right back onto God. Jesus' promise is that if we follow him, he will use our lives to be significant. It's not up to us. He'll do it through us. And some of the most significant things we do are small and go unnoticed, even by ourselves. At the time Paul is writing this, he has no idea he's changed history. All he knows is he's in prison. But because he was faithful, because he got to know Jesus, and because he partnered with Jesus in redeeming this planet... Jesus made his life, Jesus made his life significant, which is way better than success anyway, right? I mean, success is pretty short-lived. How many of you could tell me how many people won the Super Bowl five years ago? We know who's going to win it this year, but five years ago, seven years ago, nine years ago, I know a few of you could do it, sports weirdos. But most of us couldn't do that. Rich, could you do it? No. (laughs) You can? Who won five years ago? (laughs) She says, yes, I'm in trouble. If I say no, I'm a sports weirdo. (laughs) Success is short-lived. You're only as good as your last sale or your last win. But if we get to know Jesus, and if we simply try to do the things he has told us to do in Scripture, he will make our lives significant. I got a glimpse of this last weekend. I was in Atlanta because one of my former college students that I've mentored for seven years now was getting ordained as a pastor. When he was in college, we'd meet together for breakfast every Friday morning, and we'd talk about the three G's, God, grades, and girls, how they relate. And I got to watch him grow from being a boy to being a godly man. And this weekend he got ordained. But what was was especially moving to me was that my lifelong mentor from college is now also living in Atlanta and is part of the church my student got ordained in. And while we were there, we took this picture of my mentor, me, my student, and a young college student that my former student is now mentoring. That is four generations of mentors. Four generations of lives changed through the simple act of people spending time together. But what was so sobering for me to realize was the whole time I was meeting with that student seven years ago, that whole time, all I was worried about in that period of my life was, am I being successful? As measured by the world standards. Were my sermons good enough? Was my college group growing? Was it bigger than other groups on campus? 
But you know what? This young man didn't give two hoots whether I was successful or not. What made a difference to him was the fact that I'd have breakfast with him every Friday. Just the way that my mentor had spent all that time with me way back in the day. And just like my student is now mentoring someone else. It had nothing to do with my success. In fact, here's the shocker. It had nothing to do with me at all. It wasn't as if I'd meet with him every week and I'd sit there thinking, how can I be significant today? I just showed up for breakfast. Anybody can do that. And then Jesus did the rest. And I might not even have noticed that. I might not even have known if this weekend God hadn't pulled the curtain back just a little bit and given me a glimpse of how he's used me. With Jesus, we are relieved of the burden of having to be successful because he works through us. He does it. He empowers us to be significant. Even if we don't see it at the time, he will make our lives significant by how we know him, by how we help others to know him, by how we partner with him in redeeming this world in big ways and in small ways, by how we invest in relationships. There are over 12 names mentioned in this little passage. shows you how important relationships are to God. To be significant, it is as simple as how we treat our coworker, or taking time to pray for someone in need or doing a small act of service. Because of Jesus, you can quit trying to rack up titles, degrees, and accomplishments. Instead, we just need to know him and be available, and he will use our lives for eternal purposes, even if we don't see it. Actually, especially when we don't see it. With Jesus, failure isn't fatal, it's directional. And Jesus doesn't call us to be successful. He empowers us to be significant. When I was in California, I had a friend who wanted to do something big with her life. But it never really materialized the way she thought. She got a Ph.D. thinking she'd teach or do something important, do important research or something like that. But then she had kids and decided to stay home instead of get a job so she could raise her kids. Then a very good friend of hers got the job my friend had always dreamed of working with families to help them stay together and thrive. And my friend ended up just kind of as a general counselor, a job she didn't much like and didn't feel like she was making much of a difference at. And I can remember a lot of conversations with her where she would say to me, I just feel like such a failure. And I thought it was a huge irony because one of the things that she and her husband had done throughout their married life was to have various young adults live with them. They'd had over a dozen people in their home, many of whom would claim her as one of, if not the most significant person in their life, because of something she'd say during a casual dinner conversation, or something they learned by listening to her talk about her life, or simply by watching her and her husband have a great marriage and raise godly kids. The people who were lucky enough to live with her and her husband got some of the best mentoring you could ever have. And I feel lucky to have met them, because she and her husband have been great mentors to me, and and, and about how to be a good husband, good father, good Christian. And I still call them up from time to time to get advice from everything about how to raise my kids to what to do about aphids in my garden. She maybe wasn't successful by her definition. But by God's definition, she's been very significant. God used her supposed failures for good to direct her, to use her gifts as a mentor, wife, and mother. And to help her get closer and closer to him. And it wasn't even as if she had to try to do all this. She just was kind of there, and Jesus did it through her. The last thing any of us ever want to do is fail. I know I don't. And I don't think God wants us to fail either. But what Jesus does do is he frees us from the pressure to succeed. 
We can stop striving for success. Instead, we can work to know Jesus more and more, and he will use us for significance even if we don't see it. A couple years ago, when I was still doing college ministry, I was talking to an older man who's been a pastor his whole life, and he asked me, how's ministry going? And I said, oh, it's great. Mind you, at the time, all the students were complaining, and I felt like a total failure. But I said, oh, it's just great. And he said, no, really. How's ministry? And I said, well, actually, it's kind of hard right now. And he said, hmm, go read the end of 2 Timothy. So I went home and I read this passage and I found it incredibly moving. Because here's Paul at the end of his life. He's in prison. His churches are a mess. The Galatians are heretics. The Philippians are fighting with each other. The Corinthians, oh my, don't even get me started, right? Sleeping with their stepmothers, coming drunk to communion. You think we've got issues? They had issues. And whenever I face problems here at church, I just think, well, at least we're not the Corinthians. I'm ahead of Paul. It looked to all the world and maybe even to Paul himself that he had failed. And yet what he doesn't know is how Jesus had used him. He doesn't know that 2,000 years later, a group of Presbyterians, a group that he'd never heard of, would be reading his words in English, a language that wouldn't be invented for 1,300 years, in a continent called America, which would not be discovered by Europeans for another 1,400 years. That's significant. But at the time... He looked like a failure. This passage is very important to me because it has taught me what matters and what doesn't. And it reminds me that what God calls up is often what the world calls down. And what Jesus views as a success can look to all the world like failure. This passage shifts my criteria. And it shows me that all of us can stop striving for success and instead invest in knowing Jesus invest in relationships, and then as long as we are somewhere in the ballpark of remotely trying to do His will, just remotely trying to partner with Him in redeeming this world, as long as that's what we are about, then Jesus will use our failures to direct us, and will we, nil we, Jesus will make our lives count even when we don't notice it. That's His promise. There are no failures in the kingdom of God. None. I don't know where you're at today. If somehow today you are hearing a voice in your head telling you that you are a failure, that is not Jesus. That's the devil. But likewise, if you hear a voice in your head telling you that you are a raging success and you owe it all to your hard work and good looks, that ain't Jesus either. (laughs) But if you hear a voice in your head saying to you, well done, you didn't strive for success, you invested in knowing me. And you invested in relationships and you allowed me to use your failures to direct you. And because you just showed up, I was able to use your life for significance. If that is the voice you hear, that is the voice of Jesus. That great failure, according to the world standards, only 12 followers at the end and one of them didn't turn out so well. That's Jesus saying to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, well done. And if God in the flesh says that to you, How much more successful can you be? Lord, help us to shift our criteria. Help us to call failure what you call failure. And help us to call success what you call success. And help us to yield our lives to you so that you can use them for significance. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.